Good morning, Three Rivers Church. Join me in prayer and then we'll get after the text this morning. Father, for the glory of your great name and the advancement of your kingdom, we ask this morning that you would do a work in our midst by Holy Spirit being teacher, counselor, guide to truth, lead us in the way of life, rescue us from the curse, and teach us as you would have us to be taught. We entrust this time to you for your glory and for our joy. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 19, verse 8 to 20. Uh, I want to encourage you over the next uh, 21 days uh, to participate with the others in the room uh, by joining in a time of prayer and fasting for the next 21 days. Uh, I've mentioned it. I've written about it multiple times. Um, and so it's on the blog. You can go and on the right-hand side, there are uh, two links. One to the first blog. Called 21 Days of Connection. The second one to why prayer and fasting. And then I'm going to write one a week as we go through this. And so in, invite you to join us in that. And when you come on Sunday morning, come expecting great things. Live daily expecting great things. And uh, so just want to invite you in on that glorious adventure. Opportunities to pray at lunch every day. Uh, and that's also on the link. You can see those things there. Uh, and participate what an opportunity. Uh, look on the walls. We uh, completed uh, KDSC training this weekend, Friday night and Saturday. And these are plans for starting radical life groups and starting churches on the wall. And uh, some of them, I think, have been taken down. So come by and read some of the work that was done over the weekend by people in your church. And so pretty cool stuff and uh, really exciting. The great things God's doing in the life of our church. Very Acts-like. Kind of appropriate, right? Because we're studying through this little book called Acts. Acts 19, verse 8 to 20. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? The man in whom was the evil spirit leaked on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Amen. Ephesus. Continuing the work that we studied last week at the planting of the church at Ephesus, now into nitty-gritty church work. The grind of doing the work of the kingdom. The work of the kingdom of God is absolutely challenging. There's no such thing as neutrality in life. One is either in the kingdom and working to advance it against the undercurrent of spiritual and physical opposition... Or they're in the kingdom and victims of the current. And they waver between going with the flow and perhaps even guilt that they're not fighting as they should be. Or third, they're just in the current of the curse, happily and mindlessly hurtling toward the end of all things without a care in the world, not realizing they are marching into 
an eternity of God's righteous punishment for the curse. I chose to say the work of the kingdom is challenging rather than impossible because Jesus told us that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Matthew eleven thirty. So if following Jesus is choking us out, or we find it impossible, then we may not be following Jesus. Following Jesus is challenging and requires us to rest properly, but by all means to use that rest to expend that stored up energy and challenging labor of engaging domains with the gospel of the kingdom, making disciples who hear and obey, establishing outposts of the kingdom and multiplying those outposts to all nations. The Great Commission should give us all a missional direction to our living. Jesus did let us know that the work would be challenging. Because He said that in this world we would have trouble. So in this world system we are going to have trouble. It is a challenge. But He said also to take heart. Because He had overcome the world. So because He's overcome it, it will be challenging. But not impossible. This challenge is not to chew us up and spit us out. This challenge is opportunity for us to fully expend ourselves. And watch Jesus make it easy and light. By making the work go forward. And causing us to not wear out like the Israelites clothing in their 40 years of wandering. Don't think that. God gave that 40 years of sustenance just so we can think, wow, God makes clothing hold up. The Jesus application to that is Jesus sustains His people. Body, soul, mind, clothing, food. As He spoke the universe into creation, He speaks life into you daily, moment by moment, second by second. We, however, have been taught in our over-retreated, over-rested over vacation lives to preserve ourselves. And we've taken Sabbath to mean weeks and months and multiple opportunities to do nothing and engage nothing. But Jesus taught us to expend ourselves fully for those who lose their lives for my sake, find it. Now that's true or a lie. There's no in between with that statement. Does that make sense? We don't need to tell current generations to take a rest on the kingdom. Current generations wear themselves out entertaining themselves to death. And seeking to make themselves better to death. But few are losing their lives for the sake of the kingdom. And I don't mean martyrdom. I mean laying down your desires here. Laying down comforts here. Laying down easiness here. For the sake of the kingdom and finding that Jesus lifts them up on wings like eagles. And causes them to run and not be weary and walk and not faint. You see, this is important. You think, what in the world does this have to do with Acts 19, 8 to 20? This is important because we have in the Bible and past church history a conflict with our experience of exceptionally easy and entertainment rich and retreat filled lives that rarely ever require the miraculous sustaining of and advance of the cause entrusted to our care. If you can do it, it's not of God. This is important because we're presented with Paul. I just wish he weren't in the Bible. If we didn't have this guy in the Bible, this would be be much more palatable, perhaps, to our culture. An ordinary, hard-working, business-owning, preaching apostle who worked like an ox, but was sustained and supported with a full measure of days, with strength in spite of his failing health and exceptional joy. In our text today, what we see, and I think it's real easy to focus on the like demons beating up seven Jewish itinerant exorcists. 
And it's, it's, it's more of a subplot to the greater, greater narrative here. Because the greater narrative, what we see is Paul hard at work, nitty gritty church work of advancing the kingdom in the city of Ephesus, sustained, empowered, and victorious by God's grace. And, and, and therein is the example for us. Because remember, we've made a point over the past few weeks to encourage you that Paul is not exceptional. Paul is not a hero. Paul is not a super saint. He's not a SEAL Team 6 of the kingdom of God. He's an ordinary seminary graduate who wanted to persecute the church that Jesus saved and sent to make tents and make disciples. Which means his life is a life we can imitate. And, and, and Paul actually said that. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So what I want us to see here is the nitty gritty church work of Ephesus. And what we can walk away with imitating. Because what you see on these walls right here is nitty gritty thinking through how to engage my domain. How to make disciples by the powerful gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Who hear and obey. Who engage their domain of society. And plant fellowships, radical life groups and churches. And trust Jesus to raise up leadership. We see that in Paul's life. But, but there's a cost. This, this isn't free. And I don't mean financially. I mean there's a cost to be paid. But the yoke is easy and the burden is light. It's challenging, but not impossible. And I want you to see it in the life of Paul. So, what do we see? What does it mean? And then, how do we obey it? The first observation I have for you is in verse 8 to 10. And here it is, laboring for the kingdom. Paul, laboring for the kingdom. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months... Now keep in mind, remember, you're going to look over here uh, to chapter um, 20, verse 34. And I want, you to, I want you to feel this. Just one page perhaps in your Bible. Paul speaking to the elders at the church at Ephesus that he has raised up and equipped. And they're shepherding the church. He's reminding them. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Paul is preaching in the synagogues while working his full-time business, tent-making job. Okay? So for three months, he entered the synagogues and spoke boldly, reasoning, and persuading. So Paul is having conversation. He's having dialogue. This word reasoning is dialogue, back and forth, conversation. And as he's conversing, he's seeking to persuade them to, to cause their mind, their soul to come around this glorious reality of what? The kingdom of God. <clears throat> but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, Speaking evil of the way. So he, he ran into opposition. He withdrew from them. And took the disciples with him. So he's in the synagogue. And followers of Jesus. Members of the church at Ephesus are with him. Meeting in the synagogue when they gather on the Sabbath. And they're reasoning and dialoguing. Note it's not Paul alone. Alone. It is Paul with the believers gathering with those who are outside the faith, dialoguing about Jesus and the kingdom. That's huge. Because this isn't in your notes, but everybody's engaged. They're engaging the domain that is unique to them. Which for them as Jews, the synagogue. So, Remember what Jesus said when He sent out the 72? He sent them what? One alone, lone rangers working by themselves? Two by two. Jesus' point is, God is in community, Father, Son, and Spirit. He works in community. We're to work in community. 
So this fellowship, not isolated from one another, working together, engaging unbelievers, believers meeting together while meeting with unbelievers. Think about inviting people to your radical life group. Don't know the kingdom and introduce them to the kingdom. Novel idea. I know it's crazy. Radical even. But invite people to come and taste the power of the kingdom in your midst as God works among your midst. And so there arose some opposition. And so at that point, it was time to keep peace. And so he withdrew. And from there, took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. That name literally means tyrant. So what Paul has done now is they've gone and they've left the synagogue and they have rented out a lecture hall belonging to a guy that's actually known and written about, Tyrannus. Name meaning tyrant. He was a philosopher. And he held his hall for philosophical discussions and engagements in the community. And so the fellowship is now leasing out the hall of the tyrant. And I want you to look at what happens here. This continued for one week and he quit because it was hard. Two years. Two years. Now remember Paul being a Jew. Took one day off a week, a Sabbath. Which was Saturday. So what that means is. For six days a week. Paul worked his tent-making job and went into the hall of Tyrannus and lectured to unbelievers about the kingdom of God along with the church. Now, here's where this is super cool. Some of your Bibles have a footnote here at the end of verse 9. And it tells you about how some manuscripts include a citation about the hours that they kept. Because some manuscripts actually carry this note about the timing of their day. Because in Ephesus, work began at 7 a.m., broke at 11. And from 11 to 4 was their siesta. I'm telling you it's holy. Naps are from God. And then they went back to work at 4 and worked until 9.30. So what Paul is doing is from the fifth hour to the tenth hour, that is from eleven to four, he's lecturing six days a week. In the middle of the work day, taking a break from making tents. Paul paid his own way, just read that for you in Acts 2034, and taught five hours a day, six days a week, fifty-two weeks a year. That's 3,120 hours of lecture. This is equivalent to 130 days of lecturing continuously for 24 hours a day. Now, it's no wonder we want to skip over that and go to like exorcisms. Because we want to skip the hard work for the fantastic. The supernatural work of the kingdom was taking place because there was a sweaty tent maker laboring like an ox to make the kingdom known. God honored the hard work. God honored the labor. He honored the effort. What's the result? We see in verse 10, this continued for two years. So that, you know what so that is, the purpose clause. Letting you know what the result of the two years was all the residents of Asia. That's a big statement because you know where this, you know where Asia's at? This is Turkey, modern day Turkey. Ephesus is on the western coast. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, both ethnicities, Greeks meaning everybody not Jew. Heard the word of the Lord. Do you get the magnitude? Do you feel that? Paul labored hard. The church labored hard. And remember, it's not Paul alone. It's Paul and the disciples laboring to make Jesus known, the kingdom of God known. 
And all the residents of Asia, all the ethnicities, all the peoples, heard. That's huge. Laboring for the kingdom. We want the supernatural works of the kingdom without putting in the labor of the kingdom. We want to see flashy without sweat. We want to see the miraculous while we're on retreat and holiday. Paul labored, the church labored, and the result was all the residents heard. Doesn't say they all believed, they heard. The church was just obedient, making Jesus known, working hard. How do we obey this? So as not to be accusatory. I wrote my name in the ap- the application. Because I have to obey this too. Remember, you know this about me. I'm pretty transparent. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and faithful he must be. He's still working on me. I didn't sing that. But that's a little song. Mitchell Jolly has to bring his life continually under the life-shaping command to disciple the nations in every detail. I need to continue to shape my life around a mission-centric reality. I need to labor harder. I need to be more specific in how I spend my time. I need to be less wide, more narrow, and give my life for that purpose. How do we obey this? We need to get on the mission that Jesus gave us of discipling the nations. And that starts by making disciples in our domains of society. That means we're engaging people who do not know. We're inviting them to come into the kingdom, to taste the kingdom, see the power of the kingdom. I think one of the beautiful things about the ministry of Paul, you look at the church at Corinth, is they were inviting people to service. And they were seeing the power of God put on display and falling down and saying, God is in your midst. It's okay to invite people to come and taste the kingdom of God. It's, come, it's okay to invite them to your radical life group, to church, and see the power of God put on display. How cool would it be for the next 21 days? If, you know, if you're engaging in any shape, form, or fashion in your domain, you have to know some people who aren't in the kingdom. Invite them to come taste the kingdom. And be prepared. Pray fast. Ask them to show up. Ask God to so work in their heart that they, they would respond favorably to the invitation. I can't speak. Invitation. And they would come in. Sit down. And in your expectation that God would move in our midst, move in their heart, and bring them into the kingdom. How cool would that be? Right? Living life with a mission-centric focus. Obey Jesus. We talk about in KDSC, discipleship is hear and obey. Not Christianity 101, 201, 301, membership. Now you're full-fledged. From the very moment you believe the gospel, you're a disciple who can hear and obey. That's discipleship. So the rest of your life, you're going to learn how to hear Jesus and obey Jesus better. I need to learn to hear Jesus better and obey Jesus better. That means I have to be careful who I spend my time with. It means I don't spread myself so thin among good things that I'm not doing the most necessary thing. I have an unhealthily strong work ethic. It's hard for me to stop. When I do take time off, about a day and a half, I'm stir crazy. And I want to say to you, that's not evil. We live in a generation that has no work ethic. I'm continually amazed by youths who have a part-time job. And no other commitments and talk about being overwhelmed. You never know the supernatural sustaining of the gospel until you're poured out and spent and have nothing left. And Jesus lifts you up. I think this is important because... And don't hear me say break the Sabbath. I need to learn to keep the Sabbath. It's a command in the Bible. It's not an option. But I don't need four Sabbaths a week. Neither do you. You don't need three retreats a year. You don't need four vacations. We need to put our nose to the kingdom 
and get in front of people and talk about the glorious kingdom of God and invite people in. That, that's our job, y'all. That's our job. You understand that? Our job is to get a job and live peacefully and easily and no challenges and just kind of float through. Those who lose their life for my sake, find it. My job is to invite people into the kingdom and grind away at that work in my domain until kingdom comes or he takes me home. Think William Wilberforce. He never saw the success of his labor, but he grinded away at it until he died. We taste the fruit of it. What a great testimony that you would grind away, never see the fruit die, and somebody a hundred years later would taste the fruit of your living. That's a legacy. That's worth laying it out for, don't you think? Heck yeah. We'll never see the supernatural if we never push beyond the natural. What's another observation we see here in verse 11 and 12? We see, we see extraordinary miracles through an ordinary hardworking servant. These two passages aren't disconnected. But I want to separate them because I want you to see that the extraordinary miracles are a result of the sweating and the hard work. Extraordinary miracles through an ordinary hardworking servant. Verse 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that, so that, purpose clause connected to verse 11, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. As though a miracle is not already extraordinary, Right? You notice that? Extraordinary. Greek literally outside of the common. In other words, there were common miracles all the time. Just crazy stuff. Fish, loaves, multiplied. Kept bring, Graham kept bringing out bread. Where did it come from? I don't know. It's an ordinary miracle. Extraordinary. Outside the common miracles through an ordinary hardworking sermon. As though... A miracle is not already extraordinary. Luke explains the miracles that happen here at Ephesus as extraordinary. Now what's interesting here is if you read this through the lens of a western, rich, jacked up theology, you're going to get nice little white prayer cloths that some slick-haired fool has touched and prayed over and sent you in the mail for a $1,500 donation. So if you touch it, you're going to get healed. That's not what this says. As a matter of fact, this word handkerchief is a word that literally means sweat cloth. This is why... Well, I'm going to go down. It's sweat cloth. You need some good resources. We read in English, and if we don't know how to read and make connections in, in paragraphs... That's why I tell my... When I used to teach... And why I want to tell college students, learn to read. And when I say read, I don't mean recognize the word and be able to say it. I mean grammatically connect verbs to proper nouns and adjectives. Paragraphs to previous paragraphs. Because if you don't, you exegete like Adolf Hitler. He used the Bible. Why was he wrong? You, you, You tracking with me? These aren't nice little clean cloths that Paul has prayed upon. These are his sweat cloths from making tents that he's wiped his face and his armpits with to keep himself clean and tossed away. This other word, aprons, this isn't a nice little piece of clothing. It's his leather or hard cloth work apron that he has put on to keep his other clothes partially clean so that when he's off, he can go to the hall of Tyrannus and preach. And then go put his apron back on and keep making tents. And I want you to notice, it's not Paul carrying these. It's other Ephesians come and go, man, this guy's crazy. He works like an ox. And by the way, Ephesus is a super spiritual city. You've already seen here, we're going to see in just a moment... Exorcism is just part of their life. So this supernatural stuff's going on and people are going, this guy's preaching all the time. People are getting saved. Great things are happening. What if we take some of his clothes and touch people with them and see what happens? 
And so they come get his nasty sweat claws and his aprons and they're going touching sick people and possessed people and great things are happening. This account and similar accounts have suffered disgraceful abuse in the hands of opportunists who either unintentionally or intentionally misuse it to their advantage. Paul's not selling handkerchiefs or socks or aprons to the local faithful. They were borrowing them and applying them to the sick. This is an extended quote I put in your notes here. And you can see where I got it. It's footnoted. They are borrowing them and applying them to the sick. And God, at this crucial and critical juncture in the church's history, being a God of incredible patience and grace, met these people on their own local level with bona fide miracles, accommodating Himself to their uninstructed faith. And the full meaning of these miracles ties in with God's view of Paul's costly, determined labor for Christ. These sweat cloths and aprons were symbols which God chose to employ in order to underscore the characteristic of the apostle which made him a channel of the power of God. In the same way, Moses' rod was a symbol. Cast on the ground, the rod became a serpent. Lifted over the waters, it rolled them back. There was nothing magical about the rod itself. It was the symbol of something about Moses which God honored. So these sweatbands and trade aprons were symbols of the honest, dignified humility of heart, the servant character which manifested and released the power of God. You want that kind of life? Sweat like Paul. I used to have to do a lot of fundraising as an executive director of a local nonprofit. And George Mueller's my hero. And people would say if they read Mueller, man, we just just pray to raise funds. And my response to them would be what Piper said. You can pray for fundraising if you pray like Mueller. You can't use prayer as your fundraising strategy if you pray once a day. Mueller prayed and raised funds because he sweat at praying. He rose early. And until his heart was at rest in God, would pray all day. Bring all staff in. House full of orphans. No food. If we don't pray, God's not going to bring it. So what they do, spend all day praying until the potato wagon came by and said, We had leftover potatoes. You want them? Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. When you pray like that, you can raise funds like that. When you sweat like Paul, expect God to do great things through your sweaty, nasty clothes. You get it? You see it? It's not nice little cloths. It's God honoring the hard work of His people in order to meet a people who didn't know where they were and show them the kingdom so that they might be saved. How do we obey this? Expend yourself for the kingdom. Expend yourself for the kingdom. And let God decide when and how to multiply loaves and fishes. If he does, give him praise and enjoy the fruit. If he doesn't, keep laboring. I didn't put this down as an illustration, but it's coming to mind. Someone trusts it's from the Lord. We have started and tried for years and years and years to see a movement of the church to the, to the system of Floyd County Department of Family and Children's Services and multiple agencies to foster and adopt. It's been nine years of starting and failing, starting and failing, starting and failing, starting and failing, right? You've been part of it. Many of you are participating in it. And it's taken a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to see what God has begun to launch in South Rome. That didn't happen because there were a few people who had a great idea. It happened because there were some people who decided to bleed and sweat and labor And lay down portions of their lives in peaceful homes in order to see the kingdom go forward. God honored that. Does that make sense? So, expend yourself for the kingdom. Lay it down for the kingdom. It is no waste. It is not a wasted life. It's no waste. What did Paul say in 2 Timothy I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is laid up for me the crown of life. Life well lived. We live as though in the West, 
our end is to die fat, happy, and prosperous. Paul seems to think that he is living for the life that awaits him on the other side. One of those dictates how you live with your nose pointed in the kingdom. One dictates that you live avoiding the kingdom. Don't presume to be a carrier of some miracle. I think there are people who get caught up in this type of stuff and they seek the miracle, not Jesus and His kingdom. The miracles come as a result of the kingdom, not seeking miracles. I want you to notice something here. This isn't Paul carrying his sweat cloths and aprons. This is other people. Paul's not presuming that he's got a special power. He's just grinding away making tents and preaching Jesus in the kingdom to a bunch of unregenerate, philosophically minded people. Other people are carrying these sweat cloths and aprons away and applying them to see what Paul's God might do. Just execute your work in your domain, make disciples, and let Jesus get His miracle power on. That's how you do it. Matter of fact, we walked through yesterday, Luke chapter 10. Jesus' clear instructions on how to engage your domain. If you don't know how to do that, go read Luke chapter 10. There are seven nice little instructions in Luke 10 that will help you do what Paul did. Because all Paul's doing is obeying Jesus. Paul's not making anything up here. He's just obeying Jesus. I want you to notice here our third observation, verse 13 to 16, that spiritual darkness is seeking to imitate the kingdom and fight back. This is, this is, a, this is a characteristic of, of Satan. Uh, you can see this like uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, all of Revelation. What is Satan doing? Because Satan is not God. He's a creature. All the way back in the garden, he's imitating God. Just negatively. Right? God says, do this. Satan comes and says, did God say? God has a word. Satan has a word. God's word says, do this. Satan says, don't do that. Right? In Revelation, we see, what? The dragon, the beast, and the frogs. Right? Coming out. These nasty things. Right? You see this in Revelation. You see Satan imitating Trinitarian reality. Second person of that evil trinity in Revelation, what? Has, has a wound. And what does the third person of that evil trinity do? Raises them to life. Does that sound familiar? Yeah! Sounds like Satan imitating the Trinitarian second person of Jesus Christ being killed and raised to life. Right? Satan imitates and tries to fight back against the kingdom. Ephesus was a spiritual hotbed of activity. Centerpiece, really, of Asia, spiritually. Think what the Vatican is to Catholicism. Ephesus was to this spiritual activity in Asia. Temple of Artemis, this rock that fell out of heaven and now set up in this temple and they're like you read the story here like the these these makers of all this thing I mean just all kinds of stuff we're going to see the riot at Ephesus next they're dealing in the occult and ghosts and spirits and in the business is quite lucrative the use of names known to have power over spiritual entities is common so adding the name of Jesus to the pantheon of names that are effective kind of makes sense. After all, if we've got another name that also exerts power, that name might help us expand our brand. So let's add Jesus. <coughs> so a crew of seven sons of a Jewish high priest are itinerant exorcists. Think. Ghost shows. What's happening in that stuff now is not new. By the way, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. Everything now is just recycled. It's just a couple thousand years old. Unless you read and find out, you won't realize, hey, this isn't new. This has been, they did this back then. 
So these guys itinerant mean they get paid by the exorcism. So if their ghost investigation is successful, they get paid. And Jesus is a powerful name, so let's add him in there, expand the business. And so they're going around casting out demons, and they decide to try to invoke the name of Jesus. Obviously a mistake. This particular evil spirit recognizes Jesus and makes a connection to Paul, but then speaks, who are you? And the dude that has the demon jumps on him. Beats them up. And they run out without their clothes. It says naked and wounded. Matt Chandler had a funny little statement about this. He said, you know, talking about getting in a fight. Don't know an awful lot about fighting, he said. But if you leave the fight naked and bleeding, you lost. (laughs) These cats are leaving naked and bleeding. Because this man is supercharged by this demonic entity. They have no authority. The Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in them. And this demon inspired, empowered man jumps on them and jacks them all to the sky and back. I want you to notice there's no resolution to this story. You read verse 13 to 16, it just kind of leaves it hanging there. Dude gets, well, they get beat up and they're naked and bleeding. We don't know what became of the ghost hunters and what became of the demonized man. We're going to see in verse 17 how the Holy Spirit resolves it though and how he works it to the advantage of his church. We just know that the enemy is hitting back. People are taking Paul's sweat cloths and applying them and demons are being cast out and people are getting saved. And so Satan decides to try to replicate the miracle and God wins a victory for his people. So what in the world are we supposed to do with that? How do we obey that? Well, number one, you need to recognize spiritual warfare is real. And you need to expect it against you and your work. If you're engaging your domain, if you're making disciples, expect the enemy to stand in the way. Because we're naturalists at heart and philosophically and in so many other ways, Satan is less overt in our context than he is in other places. So therefore, often Satan's activity is disguised. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen as an angel of light, positive thinking, positive thoughts, or negative thoughts or negative thinking. If your positive thinking keeps you from doing the work of the kingdom, it's not positive thinking. It's demonic. If your negative thinking keeps you from the work of the kingdom, it's not of the kingdom. It's demonic. But you have to recognize that the enemy is at work. He can work in your thoughts. He can work in lies that cause you to think wrongly, exercise wrong activity. He works physically. Psychosomatic is a reality deal that if I think something a certain way long enough, I can begin to feel it in my body. And if I think and believe the lies of the evil one long enough, he can get me in a place where I am not moving. We live in a context that is absolutely beset with nothing but sitting on our hind ends and being entertained. And we think if we don't get entertained, if I ain't got Facebook, if I ain't got Twitter, if I don't have my favorite show, I'm going to lose my mind. And the hours we spend, and I'm not saying those things are evil. They're not evil. But when they eat up multitudes of hours of my time, there's a chance that there's an awful lot of inactivity. And could it just be that my desire for entertainment is keeping me from moving and advancing in the kingdom? Maybe. I need to recognize spiritual warfare is real. It has come against the people of God. You need to expect it in this church. Expect it. Anything the enemy can do to stir, he will stir. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So take authority, rebuke the lies in your mind, lies in the culture, speak the truth, live out the truth. Metaphorically speaking, watch Jesus send the evil one running naked and bleeding. Recognize here though, As we come to verse 17 and 19, that Satan's tactics end up working against the dominion of darkness. Only God can pull that off. 
is take evil tactics and turn them to his advantage. Kind of reminds me of Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose. Jesus is able to take the enemy's tactics and turn them to our advantage. Because what happens here, his tactics end up working against him. And they produce conviction and repentance in the church. 17 to 19. And this became known, this whole naked and bleeding situation. To all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers. So Jesus is still saving people. And fear has fallen on them. And so those believers come confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. By the way, that's in their accounting of monies. That's right at 135 years wages. This passage reminded me of Isaiah 54, 7, 17. And I put it there in your notes. In Isaiah 54, by the Spirit, Isaiah is looking forward to this age. The age of the kingdom. And God shows Isaiah what it would be like under the rule of King Jesus. And Isaiah says, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Satan's going to imitate the stuff. And what does the Lord do? Turn it to his advantage by convicting believers who are still getting saved of the hidden stuff that they're practicing. And they divulge it, confess it, and bring it and deal with it in public. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that awesome? God used some naked and bleeding Jewish exorcist evangelists. And causes his church to see, man, I still got occultic stuff in my life. I'm still consulting the book. I got Jesus and the book of spells. And I, I need to get rid of that. Jesus' name was lifted up and the disciples were convicted of their sin and they brought him out in public and dealt with it. And everybody said, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm getting rid of it right now. How cool would it be? You remember you read a little history, Jonathan Edwards, right? And the great awakenings in our histories. Uh, our, our nation's history, right? Uh, where, where God sent the Wesleys and the Whitfields, right? These, these great evangelists came and, 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 and they preached and thousands, thousands came and confessed their sins and repented. One of, one of Jonathan Edwards' great works is called, uh, Religious Affections. And what he does is he, he's testing the difference between fake emotion and real emotion. Because he's one of the guys preaching and seeing thousands of people repent and believe the gospel. And he's recognizing even in that, there's some of this is real, some of this is fake. And in that work, he outlines the things that are really real and the things that are fake. And one of, one of the, one of the little characteristics he identified was that real emotional outbursts that were legitimate were ones that were accompanied by confession and repentance. It's one thing to get all emotional about Jesus and then go back and keep doing the stuff you're doing. It's nothing to get all emotional about Jesus and start dropping everything that's keeping you from Jesus. And these cats are like, I got, mm-mm, I want Jesus. I don't need that spell book no more. And they come in and confessing and dealing with it. No weapon fashioned against them would succeed. How do we obey this? You need to live in confidence that if we're doing God's work, operating His way, we're unbeatable. Listen, this is really cool. This is, this is true. I'm going to throw this on you. To a, to a great degree, as you obey the Lord and walk in His kingdom, Psalm 139 says your days have already been appointed. So your day of birth and your day of death are set. In the kingdom, you're very much like Wolverine. You can't be killed. I love Wolverine. Want me some claws, man? That would be awesome, right? You, get, you cut Wolverine, he heals. You shoot him, it closes up. In a very real way, in the kingdom of God, you're unbeatable. Guys, that's, that's a fact. That is a stinking fact. Now, that doesn't mean some of us are going to get to go home early. You know, the Apostle John got to live on. Jesus has a little conversation with Peter about that in John. 
Peter didn't get to live on. Peter got to go a little earlier in a very violent way. Not John. Just what Jesus had planned for John. And had planned for Peter. I want you to understand that if you're following Jesus, you're unbeatable. If you're in the kingdom and following the Lord Jesus, there's nothing the enemy can do that can succeed against you. So get after it. Notice verse 20. The kingdom grows. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevailed mightily. The word increased and prevailed mightily. The word will always prevail. I find it interesting that our culture preaches to us things to do that are going to die with us. The kingdom tells us that the word will prevail mightily. And those are things that last forever. Let for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Right? We need to obey this by receiving the victory the advance of the kingdom and enjoy it. Receive the victory and enjoy it. Work hard, sweat hard, labor hard. Let Jesus lift you up and enjoy the victory that He brings. Let's worship. Father, we pray now in Jesus' name that You'll help us. Help us to worship. Um, Help us to enjoy the victory that You have set in front of us. The kingdom never, ever, ever fails. The kingdom always strikes back and wins. And so we thank you for that. And we just received that this morning. I want to pray you make our hearts receptive. I want to pray for a good, healthy conviction where it needs to be applied. And also pray for good, healthy, strong encouragement where hearts need to be lifted up. Holy Spirit, you have to be in charge of that. So we just, we lay that down before you and ask you to do that. Lord, I ask you to work in the lives of your people. I thank you for Three Rivers Church. This, this is, a, Lord, this is an absolutely, I just give thanks to you. This is an amazing body of people. And uh, so much is a result in our town of these kingdom disciples hearing and obeying, engaging their domains. And I just thank you for Three Rivers Church. And pray, God, you, you would lift them up. But Lord, I pray for more. Lord, I ask for more. Lord, I ask that you would increase our effectiveness. Increase our labor. Give us strength. Do the extraordinary in our midst and in public. And extol your great name. Build your kingdom. And right now, we ask that we would taste the reality of your kingdom in our midst.